Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We can find instant satisfaction in almost anything these days. Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right. Sell your car the instant way. And get it done with Australia's most trusted site for cars. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, in this episode, we speak to uh, a former TV newsreader uh, and a trailblazer for women in sports broadcasting and broadcasting generally, uh, and so many other things uh, she's accomplished along the way as well. So with great pleasure, I say welcome and thank you, Dixie Marshall. Hello, Tim McMillan. Gosh, How are you're you? spunk in real life. Isn't <laughs> I used to watch you. Thank on goodness the TV. we're on radio. Look at him. There's no cameras in the studio, are there? Go. It's good. How nice is it <laughs> not being around a camera anymore, Dixie? Well, certainly um, for me, it's brilliant. It means I don't have to get made up and I don't have to have my hair all fancy, but uh, the camera misses you, Tim. Oh, no, it doesn't. Trust me. <laughs> it's all, all smoke and mirrors, as you know. Yeah. But we'll. Uh, <laughs> We'll get into that later uh, when we've loosened up and we can be really honest about it. <laughs> um, Dixie, a lot of people, of course, uh, know uh, you um, in your own right, but as well as being part of the, the Marshall family, um, your dad who, you know, I'm sorry to hear passed away a few months ago, yeah. um, but uh, you were, of course, the daughter of a, of a pretty prominent character, uh, Arthur Marshall, uh, a big name. Around Perth, yeah, he was. What, an what was that like? Fella. Being, you know, a lot of people knew, you know, Arthur Marshall, you know, the man about town. You were his daughter. What was that like? Well, he wasn't around me very much because he was <laughs> out, you know, teaching people to play tennis or down the footy club or raising money for the Peel Health Campus or doing all a whole range of things that he did. He, he filled every moment of his life, mm. and as you say, he died uh, June the seventh, aged eighty three. He was a life member of eleven different sporting clubs. He. Um, he had been a, a member of parliament. He'd um, had obviously a very successful business, the Arthur Marshall's Tennis Academy, um, and he'd been a sports broadcaster. So he, he packed a mm. lot into that life. I've got to say, as a, as an aside, Baron O'Day, Joe O'Day, looked after his funeral, and it was the most special um, way that they um, they looked after our family and yep. and the day. I can very personally um, say that uh, Baron O'Day are brilliant funeral directors and, yep. and they cared for us in an extraordinary way. So thank you to them. It, it was a fine send-off. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people who were, <laughs> who were at that service and I said uh, it was um, – and, and your – Eulogy that you delivered too was uh, something that they'll never forget. Thank you. We ended yeah. up at the East Romano Footy Club, absolutely full of the boots, mm. and the siren went off. And it was we did. We had a lovely, a lovely day, if, if you can say that. But yeah. you know, and the, the great thing, you know, there were former premiers, both sides of politics were yep. there. East Romano, South Romano legends 
were there, both from, you know, Jack Sheedy on one side and Steve Marsh on the other. There they were um, all sorts of folk mm. from Channel 7, Channel 9. Um, mm. He obviously touched a lot of people. So yeah. we're very proud of him. We're very proud of him. And we miss him. We really miss him. You mentioned uh, East Fremantle there. Of course, he played football for East Fremantle. Yeah. Um, did. Did you get, do you remember going to see him at all? No, no. Uh, as it a was youngster? Before, yeah, it was before I was born. My, and, you know, in my brother's son now plays First from Adelaide, and my grandfather, great grandfather, um, all played first from Adelaide as well. So we're we're sort of blue and white to the bootstraps. And yeah, I mean, it's a funny story of my parents at our family homes at one sixty two Preston Point Road in East Fremantle. So and Dad always sort of said that you know if you grew up in East Fremantle, you know you just breathe in that air and it puts hairs on your chest. And you're <laughs> the greatest champions in the world, be it in hockey or swimming or all sorts of sports, came from East Fremantle because we we're so proud of it. And at, in his dying days, I'd put him in the wheelchair and I'd um, I'd wheel him up along Preston Point Road. And at one twenty six Preston Point Road, there's a red and white house. My my parents built their when they um, built it the second time around. They built it and coloured it blue and white. <laughs> and at one twenty six, there's a red and white house. Oh, and my dad, as we're going past it, dad goes. What sort of a dickhead paints his house red and white and lives in East Fremantle? You know, they must have bribed the council. Like, no, Dad, no, you don't actually have to have it. He didn't make you throw eggs at him. I remember your, your dad. I played a bit of tennis as a kid. Ah, right. Uh, a long way. I didn't live anywhere near East Fremantle, but we went down every year to the big tournament at the East Fremantle Tennis Club. And yeah, your, right. your dad was, was always there, charging Spreaky. around, signing you in, telling you where your game was. He's a fantastic yeah. marketer. Yeah, because I bet that. he he would have had you thinking that you could play at Wimbledon. That was the thing. He, you know, he inspired all of these kids, tens of thousands of kids. Yeah, country it, kids. It was a it was a, as well, a yeah. big tournament. Yeah, yeah, Coca-Cola, kids everywhere. Our junior tournament. That's yep. right. And he, yep. I don't know what sort of a coach he was. Although you know, he, many of his pupils played for the state in Australia. Yeah, but he could sell the dream. Mm. We all thought that we were going to play at Wimbledon. Well, he he, which he did, <laughs> which he did. He, yeah, he lived he that dream. Correct for correct. a while, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He, was a, he was a he was a brilliant. Um, Brilliant athlete because he represented the state in um, in table tennis, in badminton, in squash, in um, in footy, and uh, and in tennis. So you know he, he certainly had a, a really mm. broad um, sporting ability. Which I'm guessing is where you developed your love of sport. Yeah, of course. I you know I grew up in a really you know we we argued sport and politics mm. um, a lot, and you know my brothers were. Great athletes. My, um, my, as I said, my, my nephew now is a, a great, great player. My, my son is playing a development squad for Claremont, which just sort of Ooh. makes us all feel a bit creepy. At least <laughs> well, it's not South Australia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and so certainly, for, and my daughter was a champion rower or is, is still a, a great athlete. So, you know, certainly it's something that in um, the blood. we, we, mm. it was important to us. Competing is, yep. we were, we were all brought up to compete. And that competitive instinct, uh, I think, has probably served you well uh, in your first sort of major career path, hasn't it? Entering the world of journalism. Yeah, well, it. Um, my dad never wanted me to be a journalist because he didn't think it was an appropriate profession for a woman. He thought, and certainly back when I started in the early 80s, he, yep. he felt that um, all women journos were hard-drinking, hard-smoking, hard-kissing, 
um, trollops <laughs> and that he didn't want his PLC daughter to turn into such a... Was he right? <laughs> well, I probably did all of that, actually. <laughs> um, and... So I had had to make this kind of pact with him whereby I went to university, got myself a degree because in my day I, mm. you could go straight from school, get yourself a cadetship and um, and then start in journalism. Mm. He insisted that I went and got a degree, which I did, and then um, and then I started knocking on doors and got myself uh, a job at Channel 9 as a, as a junior reporter and, mm. cadet, and then um, then took off really. It was fantastic. Was it the job that you hoped it would be? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was. I mean, just, it's 1984. That's probably it's yeah. what, really a, a golden time. It was for, incredible. For TV. And then, in, you know, in my newsroom when I walked in, Michael Holmes was the um, was the police reporter. Michael Holmes, as you know, is now a senior anchor at CNN. He's a war correspondent. Um, he's a he was an absolute champion. Matt Price was doing politics, yep. so you know, you know what Matt Price went on mm. to do. Jeff Hutchison was mm-hmm. a sports reporter. Bob Willoughby was a political report like that. It was the golden age, really. Mm. Um, we also were really well staffed, so it meant mm. that every job I went to, I had a camo, a soundo, so from time to time a lighting guy. I mean, what worries Didn't me now? Didn't have to worry about social media. Nah, and that's right. Twenty five hours of news across the day. <laughs> Correct. I mean, what worries me now is that often you look at, um, you know, when I was in the government looking at media from the, you know, outside, yep. looking out into it. Um, I'd look down and see reporters with a camera on their shoulder yeah. uh, firing questions and I'm thinking, how are they able to listen to the answer of whatever the Premier might be saying, interpret it and then ask the next clever question while at the same time trying to focus the camera, as you say, tweet, mm. so, you know, tweet to other journos because let's be frank, mm. who's watching a um, press conference on Twitter? Um but all these other things yeah. they had to do and then go home, have to file for maybe online at the same mm. time as get your story up for um, for the news that night. Mm. And if you're working at the West, probably get it on in the newspaper as well. Like yep. the journalism that I practiced back and learned how to practice back in the 80s and 90s is quite different to what it looks yeah. like today. Completely different job. So if yeah. your daughter wanted to go down that path now, what, what, mm. what advice would you give her? Would you suggest it wasn't a good option for her? It's very Like your question. dad did to you? And I'm, I'm married to a journo, <laughs> a former journo, and he would say absolutely not. No. Like he, he, he genuinely thinks that, you know, the world has, has moved on. I still love the notion of, of getting to the bottom of the truth mm. um, and that there is a place for really great journalism. Mm. Um, and that if you can be, you know, Sophie McNeil, um, who works um, for the ABC, a West Australian girl, young woman who's just gone off into the mm. um, international overseas arena and just, you know, she's a truth searcher. And I, you mm. know, I, re- I watch her career with, I'm, you know, just mm. so proud of what she's been able to do. But, you know, there aren't that many of those jobs mm. left. No. And, um, I, I, you know, again, worry for journalism and the, the fact that the, the budgets are changing and, yep. um, you just, you don't, uh, don't get the time it's to investigate a, yeah. a story. Yeah. There's got to be a place for quality journalism and uh, yeah. I'm happy to pay for it. The, I don't I know the, about you. The truth will always have some currency. It's just, yeah. uh, in this time of great upheaval and fragmentation, you know, where the truth is going to finally sit in the, in the mix. 
uh, remains to be seen. But I think everything at the moment has just sort of been blown to pieces, hasn't it? And it's such a shame. I mean, yeah. it's trying to work out how you monetize good journalism. Yep. I mean, I'm happy to pay, mm. I've got to say, as long as well, I know. Now you kind of have to. If you want quality yeah. product, you've you got to pay for and it. And I'm happy too that I'm getting uh, a story that doesn't have the opinion of the reporter yep. embedded in it um, and that I'm getting both sides of the story. Let me make up my own mind. Mm. What I really don't like doing is reading or watching stories where I know what the reporter is trying to, where what their views are and how they're going to sway mm. me. Mm. Um, you know, I guess this is what the big problem at the ABC is right now, that, you know, they're, they're so tainted by what is being perceived to be a, a bias of, mm. of their journalists. Um, and that's the, that's the news director's job, is to make sure that the, the journal is reporting both sides of the story without their opinion being imbued. Mm. So... That's what I like to see. Well, look, people are getting some quality here. They're getting it for absolutely nothing, Dixie. <laughs> but we do have to take a break. Right. <laughs> Dixie Marshall is our special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6BR. Back with more soon. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories uh, in this episode with Dixie Marshall. Dixie, you were just t- telling us before the break about how you're, uh, you, well, you really disobeyed your father, didn't you, by going into <laughs> uh, journalism as a career. He was uh, worried about the, the cutthroat environment there and what you might become. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, not only did you go into that world, despite his wishes, you've, you've then gone into an arguably more kind of a blokey domain uh, in, in sports journalism. Correct. Yeah. Was so. that just a <laughs> just to pee him off even more? No, that just seemed like <laughs> fun, right? Because in my day, there weren't any women that were reporting on yeah. sport. I had a sporting background. Yep. I'd done a, a sports science degree, so I knew a little bit. And I, you know, I knew the rules. Yep. Um, I hadn't played the sport, uh, some of the sports that I was reporting on. And uh, and obviously when I got to Melbourne, that was something that people really got uptight about. Um, you know, how could I possibly report upon football if I hadn't kicked 10 goals for East Fremantle? Mm. And, um, you know, my argument was always, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to report on courts and you don't have to be a doctor to report medical stories or you don't have to know how to fire a gun to be a war correspondent, mm. but you can still, you know, interpret the stories and tell those stories. Mm. And I didn't feel like I needed to have played the game to be able to report on it. But it was a really hard road in those first few years, particularly, you know, I, I started in Perth as a sports reporter and then went to Melbourne as mm. part of Channel 7's revamp of their football it, that, you know, in the mid-80s, they'd lost the football rights to the ABC and then they won them back. And part of the idea to try and attract viewers, really, and a bit of controversy was they felt like they needed a woman for the first time as part yeah. of their commentary team. And they looked around the country and the only place there was that there was a chick, you know, talking anything that uh, vaguely made sense about sport was in Perth. And it was me, and you know, so they lured me to Melbourne, and I'm like, I'm in my early twenties. I'm like, yeah, let's yeah, go to Melbourne. Sure. I'll do that. Um, and uh, and report footy. I had no real understanding of what I was letting myself no. in for, and it was a huge controversy. Um, you know, I had the first time I bobbed up in a woman in the in the change room, which in those days there was no 
behind a screen. It was just, you know, get into the change room and report live at half time or at the end of the game. And of course, you know, the, I, I reckon I knew, knew the colour of the carpet in every mm. change room in Melbourne because I'd mm. sit stand there in the corner with my head down going, holy moly, what am I seeing here? <laughs> but the first time I bobbed up there and um, the, that, um, the next day, 3OW had its switchboard jammed with complaints. There were letters to the editor. Um, there was a bomb threat at Channel 7. A you know, bomb threat? Get her off, otherwise um, you really? know, bomb the joint. Um, did, so, that, did that make you even more determined to, to stick I, around and weather that storm? Or I wasn't fighting any sort of women's rights. I just was a chick who understood a bit about sport, trying to do her job. Yeah. I didn't really feel at that stage that, yeah, I, but – I learned pretty quickly that it was um, it was something quite out of the ordinary. Mm. And, you know, I'd be walking along the boundary line at Victoria Park, which was Collingwood's home ground in those days, and they'd be ripping the cans off their VBs and then hand grenading them down so they whacked me on the back of the head they as I walked along. <laughs> <laughs> there were signs, you know, in the crowd, Dixie, show us your tits. <laughs> you know, the whole um, gamut of horror in those first um, – Yeah. That spat on. Oh, it was shocking. But over time, I was able to prove that actually I knew a little bit about yeah. um, what I was talking about. And let's be frank, it's not brain surgery. It's going out and uh, <laughs> and observing what is in front of you and being able to, to um, look at where the winners and the losers are mm-hmm. on the ground. There's only three states of a football game. They've got the ball you've got the ball, the ball's in dispute. Like, it's it's really not that complicated. <laughs> and uh, and so <laughs> over time I was able to – the people that were hand grenading me in the yep. back of the head at Victoria Park ended up bringing cups of tea. Ended up throwing meat pies instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over the years I kind of got – I earned yep. some respectability. Yep. And, and You just had to stick it out. I, I had Kept to stick it out. doing what you were doing. You, you had, uh, you know, <laughs> the opportunity to sit alongside, you know, people like Bruce McAvaney. Yeah. Was he a good support through well, all of the, that? My, um, my sports office when I started in Melbourne was Peter Landy, Sandy Roberts, Drew Morfitt, and then McAvaney came and joined us. Yeah. And me. Like... Look at that. I mean, it's it was a pretty really, good company you're in. It was absolutely – Dennis Cometti was doing it out of Perth. So yep. I was really lucky to uh, to be part of, again, the golden age of Channel 7 Sports yep. um, when I first started. And so – and those guys were incredibly supportive, it, um, as were – you know, I was there. I used to be on the panel on a Sunday mm. for the Sports World program that we had, the footy panel. And, you know, Ron, Ron Barassi was incredibly um, supportive. Um, Bob Davis – Don Scott, who's mm. still a really great mate to this day, Peter McKenna, Bernie Quinlan, those fellas really backed me in, um, you know, in terms of giving give her a chance to prove that she knows what she's mm. talking about. The um, the one that didn't was David Parkin, who you would have thought was mm. the one, the really the, the um, deep thinker, but he really railed against the fact that really? because I hadn't played, I, you know. You I weren't qualified. I yeah. wasn't qualified. And he actually threw me out of a change room. Is that right? Um, was really, really cranky, banned me. Um, and, and it took some of those other advocates, the Ron Barassis and the like, to get into his ear to yeah. say, um, you know, give, give the chick a chance. So, you, you say you, you weren't necessarily on a on a crusade or trying to fly a flag or anything, but, um, you know, you, I suppose really you were something of a trailblazer, uh, yeah. even if you – Mm-hmm. didn't intend it to be that way you know at the time uh, when you see how many 
women there are now involved in in sports coverage, footy in particular. Uh, do you feel a sense of pride, at least, that you know you, you're being thought of as this trailblazer? Oh, it's fantastic! I, I mean, and some of them are that Daisy Pierce. She's incredible. I mm. just look; she's so quick on her feet. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, but of course, I they just I, they most of the um, many of the people that criticise me reckon I was just there to to sort of snag a bloke. Yeah. You know, that. oh, she's gone to sport because she just wants to hook up with yeah, a fella. Yeah, find a, find a footy player. Um, you know, I'd always had this kind of mantra, you know, you don't get your meat where you get your sausages. So I kind of missed out on that whole <laughs> playing with the footballers. I was very straight, on the very yeah. straight and narrow. Um, but now, Mind on the job. Mm. those women are, they're, they're equals in their field in, yep. in many cases. I don't think anybody does that boundary stuff better than Daisy. I think she's the best mm. because she's listening, isn't she? She's... She's not just um, uh, observing and, and asking questions. She's listening to the answers and then um, and then mm. acting on what she's being told. Yep. I reckon she's a ripper, absolute ripper. So you've come back to Perth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find yourself then reading the news here in Perth. How did you find that? I mean, you've, you've obviously been out of that bubble for uh, a few years now. As you reflect on it. Um, well, I got – oh, I, I mean, I how, left Melbourne because I got – you know, I just got sick of asking – Footballers, yeah. how do you rate your chances and where do you go from here? And then yeah. just saying, I'm happy to get the four points and I'm going to take it one week at a time. 110%. You know? Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought I'd come home, start again in news yep. and, you know, start on, you know, the next part of my career. My family was here. I was keen to mm. to reinvent myself again. So um started just reporting and, and, and really loved, right? I mean, right up until I finished Mm. Reading and reporting, I, you know, I, I was a reporter by trade, as you were. Mm. Like, um, we weren't trained in the same way that, um, say, Susanna or Anne Conti in my, you know, mm. before me at Channel Nine. They were brought. They went through a broadcasting course at the ABC. They came up through a totally different stream to us. Mm. We were reporters uh, who happened to be able to um, present. Mm. They were presenters who weren't expected to report. So. I sort of was a the, one of the first of that kind of breed. So I was never the, you know, my pronunciation was not always perfect. Um, I I didn't obviously look necessarily the part, but I could point to Baghdad on the map and I could get on a plane to Bali once the bombings had happened and find the story that needed to mm. be told. And so, I, you know, right up until the end of my um, my reading Career, I, I was still reporting on the road and still really enjoyed mm. that part of it. Mm. What about the, uh, the the public scrutiny that goes with it? You know, people the, the, the criticism. <laughs> I remember the first time, my my first night when I came back to Perth and was reading the news. Someone rang up and complained about the pen oh, really? that I had in my hand. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really, the pen. Correct. Well, that was what they they spent time to pick up the phone, stay on hold, go through the yeah. switchboard, lodge a complaint about my pen. Well, um, my, most of my complaints were around, yeah, my jacket and yep. the fact my earrings didn't match my necklace. And, uh, you know, often it was my hair, you know, oh, she's too blonde, she's too short, she's too fat. She's, I mean, if you really had a problem with your, um, if you lived your life vicariously through your looks, that's the wrong job to be in. Because mm. as a woman, um, you, I was criticised about every aspect mm. of my appearance. Did that ever get to you? No, because I didn't feel like I'd earned the job based on my appearance. Yeah. I thought it was stupid. Um, 
I thought that um, that I was bringing a gravitas to the news that hadn't necessarily been there before and that if that was um, – I used to rail like Tim against being that perfect newsreader until I – in the look, until I realised that actually if I did put a comb through my hair and have my makeup done nicely and um, and a, a decent jacket on, then that, then that would actually take that out of the equation. Mm. So they wouldn't be commenting – on my hair and my appearance and my clothing, they would listen to what I was saying. Mm. And so I guess I transformed in that way that it, it was important to get that piece of it right because then they would listen to the message. And, you know, it's something I would say now to any woman in the public eye. And, you know, we talk to a lot of politicians and that sort of jazz, particularly the women. Mm. If you can take that out of the equation, how you look. Yep. Um, then you then then perhaps you can sell your message better. Yeah. What about the uh, the nature of uh, of the news itself? I remember reading some comments from you at the time when you uh, when you did finish up there, saying you, you know you won't miss uh, just having to introduce so many stories that were that were mm. grim, that How were did depressing. You feel about that? Yeah. I mean, it oh, really, really got to me. Really, same. in the end, when yeah. particularly when I had little kids, there, there was this lass, Sophia Rodriguez, who was um, murdered out in. Um, out at Canning Vale in a shopping centre. And I remember reading the story, doing a bit of the uh, reporting on it, but then having to present it and getting halfway through the intro Mm. and getting all choked up. You know, I think she was eight. I had an eight-year-old. And just thinking that there by the – it was a random attack on this little Mm. girl by this crazy bloke and just thinking – I, I mean, couldn't sleep that night, and, mm. and every time I went to read it, I got all choked up. And that's not a, a reader's job is to mm. um, is to influence again how what, how people are taking the news. It wasn't my job to get churned up; it was my job to present the news, um, mm. to um, observe it really, rather than participate in it. And mm. uh, so I just found, yeah, over time, I, I really I couldn't do it. I, you know, I went to Bali. The, you know, some of the worst stuff. Stuff that I'm most celebrated for, some of my reporting is um, is, is some of the worst for me as a human yeah. being. And, yeah. and yeah, I just I, I couldn't cope with it all in the end. I guess. No, it was it wasn't it wasn't an it's enjoyable it's, thing because it's do. relentless. And and you would few people understand that. It's interesting. We've never yeah. had this conversation, you and I. But no, um, that's exactly right. That if you're yeah. there night after night reporting on the most horrific. Um, incidents and accidents that are going on mm. and watching the vision so that you know what you're talking about, no, it, it's got to hurt. Mm. And you felt the same, right? Oh, look, I always, um, you know, for, for me, I, I, a good test was always, um, you know, when I'd go to do the school drop-off or pick-up mm-hmm. and, you know, other parents would say, oh, I can't watch the news. Mm. Um, it's too depressing. I certainly can't have it on when the kids are around. Yeah. Um, and if they watch it too much, they would never leave the house. <laughs> It's true. Because they'd think that, you know, someone across the road is a pedophile and there's a hoon driver over there and next door well, they might be, you know, running a meth lab in there. And, you know, because you get this skewed view That's of right. the world and your reality shifts. Um, That's right. And, and you live in this world of fear. Correct. There, you know, there's little old ladies out in Melville that are locking themselves in their house because they were too afraid to go out. And yeah. You go, but actually, our crime rate is the lowest in the world. Yes, you're more, you know, you're more likely to be hit by lightning than you are to get mm. some sort of a home invasion. But because mm. if it bleeds, it leads. Yep, that ongoing 
undermining of people's public confidence in safety. It, mm. uh, and, it, you know, often politicians, um, uh, they use that, they think that that's, there's an, a political advantage to making mm. people feel unsafe and yeah. we'll look after you. Yep. We'll, we'll save you. We'll keep yeah. you safe. We're protecting you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. Fear to control the masses yes. <laughs> or build an audience. Yeah, creepy, right? Yeah, it is a bit. Anyway. We're out of it. Let's put that to rest. (laughs) Uh, We need to take a break. After that, I want to talk about your your next uh, career path, post-television, in the big bad world of politics. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we'll get into that after a break. Dixie Marshall is our special guest uh, in Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell. This one brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Back with more soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. And we're here with Dixie Marshall in this edition of Inspiring Stories. Uh, Dixie, let's talk about your time in politics. Mm -hmm. Firstly, again upon reflection, uh, sports journalism or politics or journalism generally or politics... Uh, which did you have to have a thicker skin for? Oh, politics, of yeah. course. Yeah, um, it's a blood sport. It's uh, it's a really very hard yakka. Yep. To survive for any long period of time, mm. um, it's far more rewarding. I've got to say, to have worked in the premier's office during the time when Colin Barnett was transforming this state was an incredible privilege. So when I was rocking up today. Into here we are um, at Optus Stadium, and you know I was my second week in the job in Barnett's office was to launch the fact that we were going to build a stadium Mm. at uh, on the Burswood Peninsula, and that we were going to have to argue about that Mm. for the next five years. When it was either going to be here or or redevelop the Subi precinct. Yeah, well, Colin decided it needed to be here. Yep, which was the right decision, as it's turned out. Well, he was always sure it was the right decision. But once he made that decision and the cabinet, you know, agreed with it and we announced it, he then had to defend that decision mm. for the next five years. Um, and the attacks that he had to withstand, I mean, he's got a very thick skin. I, you know, I, I'm, um, I have a lot of admiration for what he, what he went through and was able to achieve in terms of looking at where this money was spent, the rebuild of this, not only the city but the state. I mean, if you go any, let's just take the sports facilities. You know, here we are at Optus, but if you go to the new netball centre or the athletic centre or the basketball centre in every regional town, there's a new footy oval with new stands. My kid, as I say, plays junior footy, so every junior football oval we go to, there's new facilities. He did not waste a moment rebuilding the infrastructure of sport around this state. He didn't waste a moment in rebuilding health, education, mm. you know, independent public schools, um, year, a move to year seven into high schools. You know, I could go on and on and mm. I don't – but I think people forget that time was it was totally transformational and, you know, he's had to cop a bit because of the um, the budget overrun. And um, the, the debt we find ourselves in, yeah, in but now. But if you, we you think in GFC, hindsight worth it? Oh, don't you? 
Would you would you well, give this? I'm not back? quite sure how the how the impacts of it are all going to play out yet. It's going to take a back? long time. Would I you prefer to... not to have this? No, of course not. Yeah. No. Or but, Fiona but, Stanley course, Hospital, or the new kids' all hospital. Go. No, but there are you know perhaps other things in hindsight. No, you that tell were... me what what is it? That, <laughs> you tell me what it is that we shouldn't have spent the money on. What so, in terms of infrastructure here? You mean? Yeah. So the. 12 new hospitals that we built, shouldn't we have built those? The you, you don't have to wear this hat. 100, you don't I know. Go, you're being ultra-defensive. I'm not. I'm just, I know I'm asking you as to, you know, I think that um, the money was well spent. Most of it um, that was accused of being wasted was on water infrastructure and electricity infrastructure. So I don't think that that's wasted because you can still turn the lights on um, and you can still turn the tap on and the water comes through. So... You know, if you really are, are sure that there uh, there are things that are uh, the money was misplaced on, I, I can't see it. Elizabeth Key, well, that'll pay for itself by the time it, um, mm. you know, in, in good time. And I think Colin will be in good time judged for the wonderful statesman that he was, and that the the change that un, that happened under his leadership, um, and that if we did have, you know, a proper GST allocation that there wouldn't be any debt. Mm. Um, so, and, and he obviously got caught by the the quick change in the mining boom. But mm. uh, I certainly think he left the joint a hell of a lot better than how he found it. And that's a great test of a leader, don't you think? Do you miss being in that environment? Not for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I loved it while I was there. Like, I really felt quite privileged to be, because as a journalist, you're always an observer, as opposed to when I was in the Premier's office, where I got to participate in every major decision that that he made. Uh, There was a, a storytelling component to it. So... In every, you know, in a, in a political office you've, or in a premier's office, you've got a, a political component that you have to consider. You have to, you've got a policy component and you've got a storytelling component. So if you're going to roll out a, a piece of policy or a new piece of infrastructure, you have to take all of those three pieces into um, into the consideration of, the, of whether or not the, mm. they'll be able to sell the policy. Yep. So that meant that as the storyteller... I got to to sit there and say, well, yes, we will be able to sell the Burswood Peninsula as the um, the place to put the new stadium because of the way that that will um, invigorate the east side of the city. Mm. You know, th- this was dead, Tim. This where we are now. But I look out there now. There's a there's a whole change going on on the east side. Mm. Um, so he had rebuilt the south of the city, the, the north of the city. And and now the east of the city, what's left is all that parliamentary precinct now in the west. But, you know, the place is different. It's great. Mm. I went to school just across the river here and when we used to, Yeah. When yeah. we used to go for go for you know, for, for runs at, during PE, you'd be running around just this wasteland. Nothing there. Industrial wasteland. It's 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 been a massive Whereas transformation. Whereas now, yeah. yeah. It's great. Some of the most expensive real estate in the country. Yes, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's fabulous. Um the the 2017 uh, election defeat though um, it, it was pretty comprehensive. I don't think oh. there's uh, any any hiding from that. Absolutely. Um, so in 2013, my my crew, yep. you know, we won more blue votes than ever before in the mm-hmm. history of the state. And then in 2017, we lost more blue votes <laughs> than ever before in the history of the state. So I've sort of seen. Both sides of it. Did um, you know that that result was coming? Though obviously, there's yes. a lot of polling coming up to the date. Um, yes, I as think the, it was as, inevitable. As, uh, yeah, 
And I think that if it pointed to a loss, but were you expecting the the bloodbath that it was? Yes. Yep. Uh, Unfortunately, I I felt that we'd we'd run our race. And Um, where did you? I mean, a lot of people. You know, it is hard to get a historically. It's hard to get a third term uh, in this state. Yes. Um, Obviously, you've mentioned the GST that that didn't help you. Um, no, Colin was on the nose, and I think yeah. that he would um, he would admit that. Like you know, he, people had had a guts full of him. Um, they felt that, um, and the problem was would he with, be, would he be upset hearing you say that? No, no, no. I mean, I would never say anything to you that I haven't said to him. And we, you know, I was very keen for him to leave in September. So the the election was in March two thousand seventeen. So six yeah. months earlier, I kind of sat him down and said, you know, why don't we just leave now? You know, we've achieved everything that you ever dreamt of. The um, the place is up and about. They're, they really have had enough of you. L- give somebody else a is crack. That, is that a difficult conversation? It was. It was honest. Like, you yeah. know, he always knew he was going to get honest um, yeah. advice. <laughs> I mean, he'd come back from some of those press conferences and I'd be like, what were you thinking? <laughs> you, know, he, you know, he'd be lecturing the journos. I gave you one journos. job. <laughs> yeah, you know, don't talk to the journos. Talk through the journos to the, to the public. That's what you needed to do. But he was an old-fashioned politician. Mm. He loved the debate with the journos. Mm. Like that, he, he finished his term without a computer on his desk. Yeah. Um, often I'd, ha- I'd be talking to him on the phone and I'd be going, are you holding the phone up the right way? Like he's, he was a guy from a different era, thankfully, because he was such a wonderful statesman, you know. I travelled overseas with him a couple of times and in, um, in um, both Africa and in Asia, he was just revered. He, yeah. They loved him because he, he had such a bright brain. But he wasn't a modern-day slick politician. He couldn't, couldn't stick to a line. He always wanted to explain, well, that's not how politics is practised in this yeah. day and age. So he'd probably run his race. And mm-hmm. it would have been good, I think, that if he'd have got out in, six months earlier, handed it over to Lisa mm. and, um, and sort of been able to get out on top. But instead, yes, we were thrown out of office. Can um, I ask, did your perception of, of the media change much while you were in government? I asked that particularly around the, uh, the time when uh, Colin Barnett gave you a a pretty substantial pay rise. At least yep. that was what was reported. Correct. Uh, your wage was a, a topic of conversation and a, and a headline for several days. Which would um, have been about half what you were being paid to read words <laughs> out aloud off an auto queue at Channel 9. Oh, come on. So I was running a team. Let's just think about this really logically. But did that upset was, you when people, re- people know exactly how much money you're being paid? Well, to I, knew do that 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 was, I knew that that was part. It's public money. Yeah. Were they getting their money's worth? I guess is the question they needed to be asked. And, you know, I think that we were able to um, make savings in government advertising where we were, there was a lot of wastage. So we we're able to look at how we did comms and do it a lot better. As I said, I was running a, you know, a team of 25 in our media team. Um, I had a huge responsibility. Now, I, what I find ironic is that I was earning plenty more when I was the newsreader at Channel 9 and I read words out aloud off an auto queue for a mm. living. Now, somehow that was okay for me to earn mm. tremendous amounts of money um, doing that job, but not when I came to government and played politics. They, you know, I feel the same about our politicians. I don't think that they're, the good ones are paid well enough. Mm. Because you're not attracting a therefore a, a, a caliber of person into that job. Mm. Which one of your mates wants to stand for political office? You know, you're you're a man of your generation with presumably a great mm. cohort of really clever mates. Which one of them 
wants to go into politics. Well, I've had one who, an old schoolmate of mine, uh, Tim Hammond. Oh, well, there who you got go. Out, who Look got into that. it. It was, I think it was a lifelong dream to get into it. Correct. Uh, and then he's... He's out of it. So the one decent one from your generation, <laughs> and he was extraordinary. Like, I, yep. you know, I thought he was a fantastic operator, you know, both as a person and as yep. a, a politician. The he's, best one. He's almost too good for that it. world. That's right. Yeah. He couldn't do it. He had to take a substantial pay cut. Yep. He probably went from earning a million bucks to 200 grand. He had to be in Canberra 22 weeks of the year, so left, left behind his young family 22 weeks of the year. It's a tough grind, isn't um, it? And be subject to the type of gossip and innuendo that goes with po- mm. political life, which is outrageous. Mm. I had a cartoon, Tim, um, on that I featured in almost every week for a couple of years, and the more p- so power I was seen to have, the more my breasts got bigger in the cartoon. I, by the end of it, I was wearing fishnet stockings and looked like a dominatrix, was how Dean Alston was, was painting me. I'd gone from a respectable news reading job into a powerful position in politics and I looked he, – he was drawing me as a dominatrix. Now, why, why, would, why would anybody go – my reputation was ruined as a, as a consequence of working in politics. Like, mm. my goodness gracious, why would anybody do that to themselves? That's something you're going to have to ask him, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dixie Marshall is our special guest in this uh, edition of Inspiring Stories. We need to take a break. We will be back with more soon. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. We're with Dixie Marshall in this episode of WA's Inspiring Stories. Dixie, so uh, you, you, you've left your uh, your gig uh, controlling uh, the media arm of the Barnett government. Did you ever consider a foray into politics yourself as a as a candidate? No, I look. No. I've got to say, I was never that interested in politics, <laughs> uh, in playing politics. I know it's weird, isn't it? I mean. <laughs> And I voted both sides. Like I just, I mean, obviously I'm a liberal now, but um, you know, I just, I just was not that. That is not why I went to work mm. for Colin. I went to work to tell the stories, and yep. um, so I've got absolutely zero interest in mm. standing. Even though a lot of, you know, I've been approached a couple of times. Yeah, interestingly, I, I'm sure by both sides, which yeah. is curious. Really, um, and. Uh, the, there's always lots of talk within, um, you know, when seats come up as mm. to whether or not I'd throw my hat in the ring, I can absolutely categorically say, as I have always, that it's not a career for me. I'm not. Not I'd, now, not ever. I'd cry, Tim. If the, I've seen them at each other's throat in the question time. If people were abusing me like that, I'd just, I'd end up bawling. Mm. I mean, there's no other, no other job you go to where you're walking, these guys walk into the parliamentary chamber. And then scream abuse at each other across the chamber. Mm. I just don't have the stomach for that sort no, of stuff. Life's too short for that nonsense. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, politics is certainly not for me. That said, to be a staffer where you can still achieve a lot, we, you know, I still am very proud of everything that Colin did and I was part of that, I, not, not to actually be the politician, mm. no, no. So what are you doing now? So I, coming out of that, the next place I felt was the future was um, in in digital media, mm-hmm. I felt that there was still always a place for a storyteller. So if you imagine I've taken storytelling from journalism, 
uh, in a newsroom to politics in trying to sell and sell the stories of the of the rebuild of the state. Where was the future in storytelling? In my view, it was in the digital world. There's still a place to tell stories here. And so I, um, I created a content agency um, within, you know, um, in, right now it's with working with Market Force, which is the biggest advertising agency or one of the biggest advertising agencies in the state. I run the content arm of that business because I still get to tell the stories, mm. but I can target it and distribute those stories directly to the audiences I want to be talking to. So my clients really, they don't need to talk to everybody mm. really broadly. They just need to speak to their, the ones that they want to engage with and digital mm. allows you to do that. Yep. That's not just Facebook and Google, but it's across a, you know, a whole range of platforms where people are consuming their, their other mm. stories. I can feed them content and if I'm good enough, I should be able to lure them into watching that content through. Mm. So I still say that there's a future for storytellers like us, yep. just in different spaces. Just lastly... Mm-hmm. Obviously, you are uh, Fremantle through and through. Indeed. Uh, the Dockers. Yeah. You are, you're married to a, a long-time staff member at the Dockers. Correct. Yes. Um, we live and breathe it. Indeed. How's that working out? It's fantastic. Are you, you, are, are you going <laughs> to get to boast a premiership soon? I think we'll boast some really great draft picks as a first, yeah. as a first step, as a consequence <laughs> of this week. And... Um, you know, I've, I've seen some of those young players come through, you know, Andy Brayshaw and Bailey Banfield. They are sensational. They're sensational young men yep. as well as um, as, as well as well players. Uh, Peter Bell's there. Um, I mean, I, I was a real fan of Chris Bonds, but, I, but Belly brings another dimension to that football club. Um, I think there's lots – and Ross Lyon can coach, so mm. – there's lots to look forward to, Timmy. Just the ingredients are all there. Us, just got to make the cake. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Dixie, thank you very much for coming in and yeah. sharing uh, your stories. Uh, you it. could you could write a book. If you could write an uncensored book, <laughs> it would be I a fascinating know. read. <laughs> You'd be making a lot of people blush, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you once again. You're Appreciate welcome. it. Uh, this is uh, Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one, Dixie Marshall's brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.